Good morning, church. Those of you who are joining us online, a special good morning. Those of you who are here in the room on a lazy July summer Sunday. Is it that for you? Does it feel like this is the lazy season of the year? I tell you, I promise it's not lazy for people in the construction and renovation trades, is it? You cannot drive anywhere this time of year without running into construction. You cannot drive down our street without seeing a driveway being torn up there and a roof being replaced over here and maybe some air conditioning much needed being substituted in. And uh, we get it. I mean, Karina and I, we've lived in two houses in our lifetime and two houses only. One was a more than century-old farmhouse that was sitting on carved hewn timbers uh, and the other, our new house, the one we're in right now, was built in 1963, which is not old by most standards, but given that it's older than I am, we'll say it's got some life in it. Uh, because of that history, we've had to learn through the years a little bit about what home ownership involves, specifically what it takes to move through the different homes and regions and facilities of a house and ensure that what is happening in those areas is is safe and is well taken care of and is modernized. Have roots grown into the foundation and compromised it? Has rain worn through the shingles now and uh, where there should be water inside? Well, it's finding itself in places where it ought not to be. Uh, room by room, we've moved through the house, making sure that we're aware of its upkeep. We have for these past five weeks now been doing the same exercise, but doing it spiritually. We've moved through this great metaphorical house of God. You remember the one? It's being created through the words that Jesus taught his people. The words that you and I know as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Those words. And we have used the words as kind of a roadmap through this metaphorical house. And the key idea is this. When Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Lord, would you teach us how, how to pray? Boy, they had got so much more than what they knew they were asking for. Because what Jesus offers them is not just a method of speaking to God, what to say, but he actually offers us a way of living in God. What does it mean to live with God in our lives? The Lord's Prayer is not just words. The Lord's Prayer is an outline of a life well spent. And so we've used this language of a house to understand what it means to live in God through the Lord's Prayer. You remember we started by looking at the foundation. Foundation is the most costly and the most necessary part of any construction. If the foundation is wrong, nothing you build on top of it will be solid or dependable. We looked at the foundation as being rooted in the shortest and the most important word of all in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is. It's the very fact that He is, that He exists in His permanence, in His magnificence, in omnipotence, Our Father is. That is the foundation of everything that comes. And then we we moved through some of the different rooms. We spent time in the living room of the house, that place where we celebrate the life and the identity of who we are as a family. We pray what? Our Father. That's a remarkable family word. It, it, It restores and redeems a relationship that for many people has gone drastically wrong on earth. And it elevates and challenges any of us who would aspire to use that word father in our own lives. 
to be able to tap into the riches of what God meant when he said, I am your Abba, Heavenly Father. So we were in the living room. And then we went from the living room into the great observatory in the grand house of God. Our Father, who art in heaven. Your house doesn't have an observatory, I expect. Mine doesn't either. But we all do if we would step out into our backyard where we are not covered by the ceiling above us and look into the grandeur of space and then realize that this really is the cathedral of God's creation. The observatory invites us to to live our lives in the expansive presence of a God whose canvas, the canvas on which he works, is vast, is universe-wide. The heavens are telling the glory of God. You remember that beautiful psalm? From the observatory, we went to the chapel. I don't know, maybe your house has a chapel. Maybe it does. A a, a space, a room that feels particularly sacred. This is where you drop to your knees. This is where your eyes close in quiet contemplation or open in wide-eyed exuberant anticipation for who God is. In the chapel, we've learned to cry out that one defining word that points to the attributes of who God is above all others. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Our Father who art in heaven, Holy is your name. To be holy is not just to be good in a moral sense, though clearly God is. It is to be so completely and utterly separate and distinctively different that God is a cut above, a cut beyond anything that we are. And yet, despite the fact that he is so vast that you need an observatory to consume the size and grandeur of God, and so holy, so completely and utterly cut above who we are, Despite all of that, we are invited to sojourn in his presence and remarkably to be able to speak in his presence and to speak words that invite his response. And that's where we land today. We're going to move through this fictional house from the chapel where we were last week into another room that, well, I don't know whether this one exists in your house. It does, but it's not what you think. We're going to go to the throne room. Not that throne, okay? <laughs> like, like, uh, imagine the palaces of power. Ancient ones. Like Game of Thrones, that kind of throne room. Or the modern equivalent, imagine our own legislative assemblies, the places of power. Uh, or, or maybe the more famous ones, the Kremlin, the White House. Those rooms, those throne rooms are designed to impress and to intimidate. Properly designed and lavishly appointed, the throne room can be the greatest home court advantage that a ruler will ever have. Your home doesn't have one. My home doesn't have one. But we have to stretch this analogy out a little bit because the great house of God does. And in the throne room, majestic and and, and awe-inspiring, filled with light and filled with with people who exist to serve the one who sits on the throne in the throne room, intimidating as it may be, because it takes the breath from our lungs, takes the words from our lips in the throne room. What can we possibly say to God who requires an observatory to consume his vastness and a chapel to understand his holiness? What can we possibly say to God? Jesus gave us the words. Your kingdom come. Aren't those good words to offer to a king? 
your kingdom come. Often in prayer, we ask for so much less. We don't realize it, but we're asking for a drop when God wants to give us the ocean. We come with our little satchels of requests, you know, maybe a little bit of a pay raise or a promotional bump, got transmission repairs or parking tickets or, or tuition bills that are due. And we say our prayers sometimes as casually as if, I don't know, we were placing a takeout order at the drive-thru. I'll have one solved problem, two blessings, and no hassles. All to go, please, Lord. It's a little bit complacent, isn't it? We are in the throne room of the very King of Kings. We've just covered our mouths out of reverence for His holiness. We've taken the shoes from our feet out of respect for the fact that the ground on which we stand, all the ground, whether we ever realize it or not, is made infinitely holy by the presence of God who is a cut above. Holy, holy, holy. And it's not that our needs don't matter to Him. They do. It's just that that our needs are wrapped up into God's great vision of what he has in store for his whole world. So Jesus tells us how to pray. What do you pray when you're in the throne room? When you pray, Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And when you say that, your kingdom come, you are inviting God to come into your life and take up residence as the one who is supremely responsible for you and in charge of your world. Come, take up the throne in our land. Didn't we just pray that last week when we sung together on Canada Day? Lord, keep our land glorious and free. Isn't that what's emblazoned on our crest and our motto? The dominion of Canada, recognizing that we sit under the rule of the dominus, of the Lord, of God himself. Come, take up residence in our land. Be present. Take up residence in my life, in my heart, in my family, in my marriage. Be there in the middle of my fears. Be there in my doubts. There is no, there is no request that's too feeble for God, but there's also no request that is too bold for God. And sometimes we come with too small an ask. Or maybe... Maybe we're afraid to ask at all. After all, who are we? Mortals, created things. Who are we except that? In asking, we are doing the very thing that God invited us to do. Hebrews 4.16. Boy, this verse, if you don't have this in your Bible, dog-eared and underlined and bolded, you ought to do that before you leave today. Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly to the very throne of God and stay there. What an idea. You're not just running in and out. God invites you to linger in his presence. Let's come to the, the foot of God, the throne room of God, and let's just linger there in the presence of his mercy. Let's find grace there to help us in times of need. Don't settle for something less than that. I was trying to imagine, you know, what story could I, could I tell that, that might give us a sense of just how big this truth is? That we can come into this room in the great house of God, come right before the throne of the King of Kings and lay it out there 
and that God hears it and honors it. So here's a story I've come up with. True story, wonderful illustration. A story of boldness and coming before the king. It's the story of Hadassah. And though her language and her culture are vastly different from ours, she could tell you a thing or two about coming boldly before the king. Now, there's a couple of differences between her story and this this metaphor we're dealing with of the throne room in the great house of God. For one, her request wasn't made to, to God, Heavenly Father. It was actually made to the one who was the ruling monarch, the actual king in power in her day, and it just happened to be her husband. Her prayer wasn't for herself. You know, God, could you deal with uh, these few little pesky annoyances? Ingrid at work, who drives me crazy. And um, and the tax bills, which just seem to keep going up. And the grocery bills, which go up even more. Could you? No. Her prayer wasn't for herself. It was for the delivery of her people. And because she found the courage to enter the throne room, because she opened her heart to her king, boy, her request was responsible for saving millions of people spread across 127 different countries of the ancient world. So don't ever believe that big things don't happen when people go boldly into the presence of the king. I'd love for you to meet Hadassah. And if I could, I'd bring her right up here on the stage and we'd do a little interview. The trouble is she lived and died in the 5th century. So we can't do that. But, but we can read a little bit of her story in the book that bears her name. Her other name, not Hadassah. Her other name was Esther. There it is. So we have a book of Esther in the Bible. What a book it is. I mean, Hollywood have a, Hollywood would have a hard time matching the drama in this story. You have at the center of the story an evil character, a man named Haman. Haman who demanded that everyone pay him homage. He just, he thought if there were anything in the world that ought to be worshipped bigger than him, he had no idea what that might be. So there was evil Haman. And then there was a gutsy character, a man named Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow down before Haman. He was a man with some integrity, a key part of the story. It was Mordecai who takes Esther under his wing as a counselor, as a supporter. It was Mordecai who said to Esther, one of those expressions that you know, and you know that you know it, but you didn't know why you know it. Well, here's why you know it. It's Mordecai who said to Esther, you were created for such a time as this. That's where that expression comes from. For such a time as this. And it was Esther, the other major character in the story, whose conviction to save her people ran so deeply that here's another expression that you've heard before. And this is where it came from, where she's able to say, you know what? I'm all in. And if I die, I die. One other character in the story. His name is Xerxes. Xerxes, the, the absolute monarch reigning over vast territories that stretched all the way from India to Ethiopia. If you raised an eyebrow, it would affect millions of people and change the destiny of the world. Now, the book of Esther is a curious book in the Old Testament because the whole thing serves as one kind of grand analogy, a metaphor. There's lots of books in the Bible that are like this. There is a story that functions kind of like a parable. It doesn't mean it's not true. It is true. These are historical events, but they are events that point to deeper truths. And in this story, 
Xerxes, representing absolute power on earth, kind of stands in theologically for how we understand God. The great king who guides the river of life, who doesn't even have to raise an eyebrow to affect the course of the future. And if and if Xerxes is standing in for God in this great analogy, then Haman, the right-hand man of Xerxes, this wicked man, I mean, you could, you could read every word ever written about him and you wouldn't find a good one in there. He was an insatiable egoist. He wanted the worship of everybody. He was troubled by a particular minority group that lived within the walls of this kingdom. The descendants of Abraham by, by Jewish people. He convinced Xerxes that the world would be better off with a holocaust. And so he sets a date for the genocide of all Abraham's children. Haman stands in or represents a darker malevolence. An even more malevolent figure who has no higher aim than to see every knee bow as he passes by. This is how scripture describes him. John 10.10 10 said, this is the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. In Revelation, it says, this is the one who is filled with anger. Because he does not, he knows he does not have much time. Right there in the very beginning, ever since the garden, this serpent has tried to derail the plans of God. Destroy the Jews. Destroy the Jews and you destroy the lineage of Jesus. Now for Haman, that might have been a matter of just some convenience. But for Satan, this is a matter of survival. He will do whatever it takes to prevent the unfolding of God's plan in the world. And that's why he must be terrified. I I guarantee you, nothing terrifies Satan more deeply than when the people of God drop to their knees and pray, Thy kingdom Come, because that spells the end of his reign. So you have Esther. You have Esther, Mordecai's adopted daughter, who becomes queen. She wins the equivalent of the, I don't know, the, the Miss Persia pageant, right? And, and she's drawn into the royal household. And again, following the analogy, this, this in more ways than one, Reminds us of us. You two are residents of a palace. Esther, because of her status as a bride of the king of Xerxes, you as the bride of Christ, knit into the family of God. You both have access to the throne room of the king. Both of you have a counselor to guide you and teach you. For Esther, it was Mordecai. For us, it's the Holy Spirit. It was Mordecai who urged Esther to be strong, to take that valiant stand, to appear before the king. And that was no small thing. In fact, let me show you how big a risk it was. You may wonder why she needs this encouragement. Wouldn't you and I just act instinctively? Here's why. Esther 4, verse 11. Esther says, this is her speaking, no man or woman may go to the king in the inner courtyard without being called. Why? There is only one law about this. Anyone who enters must be put to death unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And then, and only then, that person may live. And here's where it gets real. I've not been called to go to the king now for 30 days. You realize what she's saying? 
as strange as it may sound, not even the the queen could go into the courtyard and into the throne room of her king without an invitation to do so uninvited, carried the death sentence. And that's what she faces if she is going to follow through on this act of boldness and appear before the king in the throne room to make her request. And if you wonder why, why Mordecai, as a wise counselor, kind of reminds us of the way that the Holy Spirit works, listen to what Mordecai says to Esther. This is in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Sometimes the Holy Spirit gets a twist in our lives, right? So here it is. Just because you think that you live in the king's palace, don't think that out of all of the Jewish people that you alone will escape. You need to do something. If you keep quiet at this time, maybe someone else will help and save the Jewish people, but, but you and your father's family, you will all die. And who knows? Here it comes. Who knows, Esther, you may have been chosen queen for just such a time as this. Listen to how Esther responds. Chapter 5. Esther put on her royal robes. She stood there in the inner courtyard of the king's palace facing the king's hall. She's hanging it out there now. Can you picture her right off the cover of Mademoiselle magazine? And you can see you can see King Xerxes on either side of them, those burly chested security guards around him, those chattering court aides ahead of them, this long day of, of royal red tape and cabinet meetings. But but then, just out of the corner of his eye, he sees Esther where nobody should be, especially her, invading the sanctity of the throne room. Verse 2, chapter 5. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, he was pleased. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther went forward and touched the end of it. And you remember what that meant? Life. Yeah. Freedom from the sentence of death that was automatically spoken over anyone who stepped into the throne room. And what follows is the rapid collapse of of Satan's whole deck of cards. Esther plans a couple of banquets for Xerxes and for Haman, but she's being sneaky about this. At the end of the second banquet, Xerxes is, is so overwhelmed by her generosity by her love for her husband and her love for her own people, that he begs Esther, says, you can ask me anything, and and if it's in my power, I'll do it. And Esther looks kind of sheepishly and and says, well, you know what? Now that you mentioned, there is this one small thing. (laughs) And she proceeds to talk about the raging anti-Semite working under Xerxes' employee who was hell-bent on the extermination of Esther's whole race of people. Xerxes demands the name of the murderer. Haman looks quickly for the exits. Esther spills the beans. Xerxes just loses his cool. He storms out the door, but he he retains his composure. He comes back into the room, and what does he see? Haman there at the feet of Esther, begging for his life. King thinks he's making a pass. (laughs) gets Haman in even more trouble. Before he has a chance to explain, he's headed for the same gallows that were built for Mordecai. How does it all end? Haman gets Mordecai's rope. Mordecai gets Haman's job. 
Esther, she gets a night's sleep, that real peace in knowing that she had preserved not only her life, but through the generosity of the king, the life of her people. The Jews live to see another day. And we get a dramatic reminder of what happens when you approach the king in the throne room of his power. Like Esther, we have been plucked from obscurity and we have been given a place in the palace. Like Esther, we've been dressed in royal robes, not cloth, but but robes of righteousness, the Bible says. Like Esther, we have the astounding privilege to make our request before the king. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, it comes. It comes and all heaven rushes to the aid of God's good earth. Well, that's all I got. And it's a lazy July Sunday. So let's say we wrap it up in an hour today. Let's pray together. Let's pray using those words. Would you join me as we pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.